0: This is something that if you do not understand 20th century history, unless you understand banking, because who makes a fortune off war? And it's not war, it's debt. National debt creates an enormous amount of wealth for those who buy the debt. It makes a ton of money for them. And for the rest of the people, what does it make? A lot of taxes, (laughs) lots (laughs) of taxes.
1: Hello, everyone. That was an extract from this interview with today's guest, Robert Bonomo. In addition to being a filmmaker and esotericist who's produced a documentary on the tarot, Robert worked for many years in the financial sector and strove to understand that most basic of questions, where does money come from? His study of this ultimately led him to write an article, The Moral Hazard of Modern Banking, How Banks Create and Destroy Money, and that's gonna be the theme of this interview today. We talk about the relatively straightforward question of where money comes from, and what is for me the much more complex and hard to understand one of how it is corrupted. I was certainly learning as I went along here, and you'll hear the gears in my head grinding at certain points when I ask Robert to stop and go over some of the, the points again, but I felt by the conclusion I had a much clearer understanding of a subject that I've been aware of but not felt entirely comfortable with for many years now. And I'm hoping that my struggling to come to terms with it will mean that we've recorded something that makes it very accessible for the listener too. So here's Robert talking about the events in his life that led him into this line of inquiry.
0: In college, I was a history major. And they often talked about how war was good for the economy, but it never made any sense to me. Because I remember thinking, if you destroy the means of production and your production creates things, weapons that that don't produce anything, how is this good for the economy? That never made sense to me. But they never explained banking. I got, actually, I have a master's degree from Boston University in management. Studied finance at the graduate level. Never talked about money creation. And there I am working in a bank. and And it didn't make sense. And there was one very key moment that I was doing the marketing for certain loans. So I knew what our cost of acquisition was. So I knew the break-even points, assuming that the bank was using money that people had deposited. And I was at a trading with a guy from BNP. I'm sure you've heard of BNP, you no know, big yeah. French bank. Yeah. And um I asked him, I said, you know, with the marketing costs, how are you making money on the mortgages? And with the full this guy had gone to Harvard. He had the whole BNP, you know, high high fluting thing. He was like, uh, "For BNP mortgages are loss leaders," and that's when I just started to shake my head. I said, "There's no way BNP is losing money on all these mortgages." But you figure I'm a thirty at this point, maybe a thirty-five year old with a pretty good career in advertising, with a master's degree and a history degree, and I had no idea how the bank was actually creating what they were selling
1: right i mean that all of, like mind blown already there really robert the idea that so i'm thinking like if they're losing money on if, if they're losing money on mortgages what are they making money on isn't that how they make their money right i, I mean
0: what's you right so what the bank tells you I mean, and this is what this guy told me he says oh because and this is true when you when a bank gets a, a product like a key product like a mortgage they can obligate you to get life insurance. You have to have your checking account there. They throw a Visa card at you. And it's very easy to sell you down the line, say a car loan, something. So there are other products that they can pack on. But that was his argument to me. And then I, I had a friend who was the CFO of a small, but still an oil company. CFO, you know, this is a serious, very intelligent man. I remember we were having a beer one day and I asked him, and this guy was so smart, he just shook his head said, you know, Bob, I have no idea. He says, the only thing I can think of is they nickel and dime us to death. You know, fees and things. He goes, but the actual business model makes no sense. This is a CFO of an oil, not an enormous oil company, but a legitimate oil company. So this is how deep the (laughs) the lack of understanding goes. People high up in banks, people who work in finance, and they really don't understand the basic banking business
1: okay so i mean i actually want to go back to what you said right at the start because i didn't know you were going to say that, that war is good for the economy right because that's a a real pet peeve of mine okay because mm-hmm. it, it's a common myth right people think that, that world war 2 ended the great depression in the united states and why why i find it a particularly corrosive nasty myth mm-hmm. is this idea that violence and destruction has this good side to it right So you, you have economists like um the new york times guy paul grubman coming out in, mm-hmm. after 9 11 saying well you know on the other hand it could stimulate the economy right and um it's ludicrous on the face of it and then the idea is that economics is a subject where very clever people think up how ludicrous things are actually true right and then they present them to the general public um and of course ludicrous things aren't true right i mean i'd um i'll just draw an example that um an historian actually uh, tom woods gives in a, in a book about the financial crisis and the idea that if war stimulated the economy right if that was true then japan and the united states I think of the countries it chooses they could solve all their economic woes by just building the biggest two battle fleets man has ever seen sailing them out in the middle of the pacific ocean evacuating all the people because there's no reason to have loss of life. And then it goes dynamite, right? right? Send them to the off of the ocean and we'd all be super rich from the jobs that created, right? Now, obviously sending all your wealth to the bottom of the sea does not make you wealthy, but that, I mean, you know, there are highly paid economists who
0: whose job it is to sell that myth to the public. Really. And, and, and one thing, the second part of that, you don't even need, you don't even need to sink them. You can just build them. So it's like, it's a brilliant, it's a, but it's a brilliant metaphor because, with that logic, all we had to do was just spend tons of money on guns. We wouldn't even need a war because you know the shooting the gun doesn't make you any money. The concept is if we make all these guns, we make money. No, but you make the banks a ton of money. This is something that if you do not understand 20, 20th century history unless you stand, understand banking. Because who makes a fortune off war? And it's not war. It's debt, national debt creates an enormous amount of wealth for those who buy the debt it makes a ton of money for them and for the rest of the people what does it make a lot of taxes (laughs) lots of taxes
1: okay how should we approach this then shall we talk about the myth of money or do you want to cut into the reality of money where money comes from talking about
0: i think we should start out talking about a little bit of what money is and then we can go into the kind of the mythology of it because i have yeah. some examples from my own marketing background that i think could help you
1: know. yeah I, I guess with i probably myth was the wrong word there the corruption of money okay so do you want to start off talking about what money was historically how it was as a commodity that becomes commonly sure. used in trade. and because i mean this was a fascinating thing to me i'll just tell my own little mm-hmm. advice to sit in school not doing my school work I was just fascinated by this concept of, of money and trying to figure it out. And I'd have I, like, have a little piece of paper and I'd draw an imaginary little settlement that people would go and live in, and there'd be a, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, a schoolteacher, a farmer. And I'd thinking, okay, like they'd have a government, so someone's employed to govern the place, and the government person, they must do the money, right? They must create it, and then banks can take it in and load it out, but it must be the government that creates money. Yeah. So how do they do that? Right. Do they, do they give everyone like a hundred pounds each to start, but then why would anyone accept like paper that, no, I just, I, this must be, there must be a thing here, but I can't get my head around it. And I was essentially trying to logically explain a fiat of this money has value because we decree it to have value system. And I couldn't do it. I thought, well, gee, it, it seems like it should be simple and no one else knew. And, um, that was my confusion. Years later, I stumbled across a book called The Mystery of Banking by Murray Rothbard. And in about sure. 20 pages, that, that nailed it for me. It's like, oh, I was thinking about it completely the wrong way. Now, I think you know what I'm getting at. So I'll stop and let you tell the story. How did you come to, you know, you, you, you've described how you're in this time. No one seems to know what it is. What was the progression for you then to, to understanding money?
0: Yeah, it, working at a bank, it put that splinter in my mind. Because like I said, we were selling 3,000 3, euro loans and it was costing, I was spending $600 in marketing for each funded loan. There are 20% loans. So I'm saying we're breaking even at about 15 months. Yes, yes. That made no sense to me.
1: Hang on, uh, I'm going to have to slow you down because I'm not good oh. at this stuff, right? So 3,000, oh. you're loaning out $3,000. 3,000
0: euros? This was a European yeah, bank? Euro. 3,000 euros at 20% interest. Okay.
1: Personal so loan. That is $600,
0: 20%. Yeah, about, yeah, yeah. it's about okay. 600 euros. Yeah, it's exactly 600 euros a year in interest. And,
1: okay, and you're spending 600 euros to get that 600 euro. So you break in, in, marketing. in marketing. In marketing. And then there's more. Yes, costum- in
0: marketing. There's okay. also administrative costs. Oh, okay, so and,
1: that's what you're I'm getting break. here then. It's like the year for the marketing and then a few more months. And right. that's your break even point. Now, why, just explain to me, why is that not? Um, an acceptable break-even point for a bank. What's the?
0: Well, I mean, it's not an unacceptable break-even point, but it seemed to me that 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 it was it wasn't the greatest business model in the world. That that's a big marketing spend to break even at fifteen months, and oh, I mean, I guess I, I guess I wasn't shocked by it. It's not a bad business, but I just thought that that seemed like a long time. Mm-hmm. They said, "Yeah, yeah, but you know, we had, we get recurring business, lifetime value of the customer. This works." So when you when one thing you have to remember when people think of banks, they think that they go into the bank and they borrow money, and the bank has acquired the capital either through deposits or on on money markets. They go out and they borrow the money. Yeah, they they borrow it too.
1: Money people have deposited in the bank,
0: or they go out and borrow it borrow it just on money market that would make sense three three, four percent so imagine you borrow the money at three four percent but remember i'm not even i'm not including in my 15 months the actual cost of the money so if you think about that then it you push it down you've
1: got to pay someone to have that money
0: yeah right right there's a cost so it didn't it just didn't seem right it just didn't seem right and then talking to the people because remember those are 20% loans so when i was talking to the guys at bnp i was like well you know your mortgages are at 4 or 5% so you know the the numbers change the guys at bnp are saying oh no it's a loss leader so i was completely confused so out of that confusion i spent a long time just kind of going through you know, looking looking up fractional reserve banking does this make any sense and it made no sense. There used to be a Wikipedia page. They've actually taken it down. The the fractional reserve where they would explain where a person goes in with $100, deposit it, the bank holds 10. Have you ever seen that diagram? I have seen diagrams. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and they some... try and explain fractional reserve banking as if I go to a bank with $100, the the, whole, the bank holds on to 10. I deposit 100 the bank holds on to 10 lends out 90 yes then that person takes the 90 deposits it they try to create some scheme where this actually creates money but it doesn't that scheme does not create money because if you do it with oranges i, I remember i asked somebody i said well, what if i did this with oranges if i take 10 oranges i go to the bank i put my 10 oranges in mm-hmm. is there any way by lending out those oranges they can make more oranges so that whole fractional reserve banking, that that does not work. Now, if people are, are skeptical, or maybe this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, highly recommend you look for a blog debate between Krugman, who you mentioned, and there was an Australian economist. It's a fascinating blog debate they have about does banking how banking creates money and it's through credit. You know, and it's taken a long time for people to just come to terms with the fact that, you know, banks create, money's created through credit.
1: Okay. So this is an idea I encountered really when stepping into the alternative world, you know, 80, mm-hmm. finding out a lot of things in the world didn't work the way maybe casually assumed they did as a child without anyone ever saying, yes, it definitely does. And this idea of, oh, yeah, banks, they create money. That's, that was the most mind-blowing of all, really that's impossible you know
0: what can't be so go ahead what's, what's yeah, your... and I, and I just wanted to. I just wanted to tell the little bit the story of how I I wrote a couple blog posts on money but I was playing around with it I hadn't really struck the chord and then I came up with this idea I wrote a. I wrote a post called um, what was it called uh, the moral hazard of modern banking how banks create and destroy money so I came up with this idea I said I've got to explain the mechanics I began writing this and I got stuck because I couldn't believe how easy it was. I didn't, I didn't trust it. It's just too simple and it's too much of a scam. And I said, this can't be, and it can't be. I spent six months just really going, this can't be possible. And then I just remember one day my wife was working on her PhD thesis and I just sat down and I banged it out and I read it and, and it worked. I mean, that's how it happened. That's how banks create money. They create money through credit. Credit creates money. But it, it cost me, there was such a long time where I didn't believe it. I just didn't trust myself. It's too easy because it's so simple. It's a beautiful system. But if people understood it, they would become very, very angry, very angry. And it changes the way you look at history. It completely changes the way you look at
1: it okay so break that down what does that if I go to the bank with my hundred euros or my hundred oranges if that's an easier thing to put it in uh-huh. terms of commodity I deposit them you come along for a loan what can the bank loan you out of those hundred euros oranges and where is that money coming from what does it mean to say they create uh-huh. money through credit
0: yeah so let's yeah let's stick with the money so Yeah, let's just say, wealthy man, bank is created, wealthy man or person, whatever, goes to the bank, dumps in, let's call it 10,000, 10,000 whatever, euros. What the bank will do with that deposit is put it on reserve. So that money goes into a reserve account with the central bank. And banks are allowed to create 10 times their reserve amount. So this bank has 10,000 on reserve, Let's say another person goes in and wants a loan. What the bank does, it creates a promissory note. So I, person who's getting this credit, sign that I will pay, let's just say 10 years at 10%. I will pay in these 10 years, 100,000 euros. When I sign that document, what the bank does is monetizes that document. It monetizes the debt. So there's a debt obligation that's just a piece of paper. But think about it. I mean, there's really a service that the bank is doing. Because imagine I was buying your house and I said, okay, I'll sign a paper that I will pay the, t- the 100000 in 10 years at 10% and I give it to you. You probably don't want that. You want the cash.
1: Because I don't if you don't pay, I'm gonna to have to go to the mob or something, right? What's my request? Right. You know, so yeah, exactly. with the bank, they can but get the you. the
0: Bank monetizes that debt. So it monetizes that promissory note. It takes that promissory note and says, Imagine a debit and a credit. So it creates a debit, which is a positive, which is that promissory note, and then it creates a credit, which is a hundred thousand dollars. Let's just call them U.S. dollars. Okay. Okay. So it turned that piece of paper, it monetized that piece of paper and turned it into $100,000. And it gives me the $100,000.
1: Right. So it's not that the bank can come after you if you don't pay back. It's that they're literally creating the money on the spot. That's the difference. They create
0: it on the spot. Yeah. Okay. Now, as I pay back that debt to the bank, you know, let's, let's just make it simple. Let's say every year I pay them ten thousand, with interest, of course. The interest we'll talk about. We can talk about, yeah. It later yeah. Now. yeah. But so I just pay back when every time I pay back ten thousand, that that piece of paper is worth ten thousand less because I pay right. So the piece of paper is worth ten thousand, and there's ten thousand left. That ten thousand I pay back to them is destroyed. It's gone. Slowly that debt gets destroyed. And when I make the last payment, right? There's zero and zero. My piece of paper is worthless because I paid it back and there's no money left. Hang on, I'm just saying,
1: you but we said you borrowed 100,000. Right. Talking about 10,000, what?
0: Ah, okay, yeah. Remember, one person went in yeah. and, and, and left 10,000. That nothing happened to that 10,000. That 10,000 went into an account
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and the bank is allowed to create 10 times its reserves,
1: mm-hmm.
0: reserve so, requirement.
1: As you, the borrower pay back the 100,000 over a 10 mm-hmm. year period, what becomes of that 100,000 then? Is it that? disappears? Dis- that's disappeared, okay.
0: That's how, that's why it's very important to understand when in the, in, for example, in 2008, so much debt was being paid off there was a liquidity crisis because nobody had money to pay debt. So there were bad debt. Well, we can explain the bad debt part in a second, but when people stop paying loans, okay, this, get, this might get a little complicated. Let's just go back to the original example. As that person pays back that money, right? The money is destroyed. Mm-hmm. But this is very important. And this, this is what controls the banking system. If, imagine, the bank creates $100,000, right? Mm -hmm. Gives it to that man and he doesn't pay. If he doesn't pay back, the bank must replace those $100,000, put those $100,000 in reserve. They have to go find $100,000 and put it in reserve. Why? Because the promissory note is worthless. There has to be a balance. If you create $100,000, you have to have $100,000 on the other side. If my promissory note is worthless because I'm not paying, they have to get real hundred thousand and put it there, so it's a hundred and a hundred. Okay. Okay. That's why in 2008, when everybody stopped paying, the banks had no liquidity. When they said the entire world banking system is going to be is going to collapse in a day, remember that whole scene in yeah, Washington yeah. with Bush and everything? That's what they meant, because there was no money. People stopped paying the debts the paper was worthless, and they have all these reserve requirements that they can't fulfill. So all the liquidity just got sucked out of the market and there literally was no money. There was not enough money to, to make the system go. So in a sense, in a sense, I mean, I'm sure we could have survived, but that was a true crisis because it was like, imagine all the money in the world just evaporates. It just becomes, it's gone.
1: So with this system being set up, I guess I'm wondering where it comes from and who benefits, really. Because the way you set the money up is going to rig the board, right, to favor some and disfavor others.
0: And, and the story, the traditional story is that it goes back to gold, you No, know? People would leave gold with jewelers and they would get a paper receipt. Mm-hmm. And those receipts would get instead of going and getting your gold, you would just pay with those receipts. And then of course the jewelers or the people who held the gold realized they could write more paper than there was gold. So if I had, I don't know, 10 kilos of gold, I could write paper for 20 kilos. Yeah. And loan, I can loan money out no, as using as long as you don't go mad with it,
1: you won't get caught, right? You know how many people are going to come on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis and request their physical gold. Right. So you're making profits on loans for gold that you are perceived to have
0: but don't really have. But don't really have. Now, that wor- the banking system works if you manage risk. So traditionally in the real estate market, traditionally, the whole concept of twenty percent down on a loan, from the bank standpoint, was if you put twenty percent down on that loan, and the bank has the the uh, title of the house, and you stop paying. Okay, I have a few months to sell the house. Okay, and that in that twenty percent covers me, so it wouldn't cause a crisis. But for example, in two thousand eight, obviously people just you know, the banks went crazy chasing higher returns on lower quality loans
1: so what do you think is there a sort of is there in any sense a legitimacy to what the bank is doing or if you go back to the old uh, the jewelers locking up the gold are doing in is it fraud to issue notes beyond the reserves you have plain and simple uh, is it does it serve the economy in any way what
0: are your thoughts yeah i mean. I, I think it, it actually worked. The system worked for a pretty, a pretty long time. A long time. And for example, in the United States, it worked reasonably well. In, the post, in, in basically the post-war period, it worked really well until, say, the 1970s. So it can work if, if the banks manage risk. But when the banks start losing sight of the fact that a banker's job is to manage risk and they start chasing wild returns and everything blows up. Remember in 2008 and 2009, the banks had loads and literally trillions of dollars in worthless paper. Absolutely worthless. So that's what many Americans do not understand that QE was, quantitative easing was the Fed saying, okay, we'll buy back that paper. Because hmm. remember, quantitative easing was buying bonds and buying mortgage-backed securities. And they, they said, okay, now yeah, we'll buy back your paper. So it's like, I imagine we make cars that don't run, that are absolutely worthless. And the Fed says, okay, we'll buy them for you. And how did the Fed buy them? By creating money. The, the Fed is the only one that can actually expand their balance sheet by just creating money
1: right okay that's so when you say um managing risk okay i mean what's what's gone on there that the banks got more reckless over the years but what 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 are them there must be incentives and restraining factors on banks right sure. so there was a shift then that happened
0: yeah and and that's probably. In the 1980s, so in the 1970s in the United States, we had a a terrible inflation problem in the 1970s. Um, That got fixed more or less with the development of the whole petrodollar system with the Saudis. Because when we went off the gold standard in, what was it, 71? I can't remember the year, but Nixon took us off the gold standard. So basically the dollar becomes a fiat currency. Basically there's nothing behind it. So they came up with the whole petrodollar system, which was a brilliant idea, which put demand, constant demand in the world on dollars because all oil would be bought and sold in dollars. I mean, every central bank in the world had to buy dollars, sort of the imperial tax. Yeah. Every, so, every central bank's got to buy dollars because most countries don't have oil. They've got to buy oil with dollars. Okay, so just, just
1: mention oil. how that comes about through like, OPEC. i mean, like, because I'm not really clear on this myself. Like, I know that OPEC um, agreed to sell oil in dollars, and that's um, which countries members: Iran, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait.
0: Right, but the key one is Saudi Arabia.
1: Sure, but was because that with,
0: did that come uh, about from from pressure from the US to sell in dollars? Yeah, that I, that was. I, I'm trying to forget the year. There's a certain conference. There's an. There's a. Uh, the name's escaping me, but. I can't remember who it was, but basically they came to an agreement with the Saudis, which was oil would be traded in dollars and in exchange, Saudi Arabia gets U.S. protection. Right. So U.S. military will will protect Saudi Arabia. And you can sell that on a geopolitical sense of the United States military is going to protect oil, which the world needs. That was sort of the selling point. And in exchange, all... Transactions in oil would be in dollars, which put that demand on dollars and maintained the Bretton Woods system. It gave it another, what, 20 or 30 years.
1: Okay. So let's see if I understand the tax part of it right. My understanding is then that because all the countries in the world are then compelled to buy dollars, okay, they buy dollars when there is a certain amount of dollars in the world, right, and purchase the oil, whatever goes on of that, and then. By the time those dollars return to the united states to be spent and american goods purchased more dollars have been printed so the dollars are worth less when they come back than when they went out and the difference is effectively a taxation
0: on the world but but also the dollar the value of the dollar is higher than it should be then that for example in forex markets the dollar is always going to be worth a little bit more than it probably should because there's a constant demand on it oh, okay. people are constantly buying dollars so it makes the dollar, the value of the dollar more than it probably, in a normal sense, should be.
1: So okay. that extra
0: demand, is, it's, I see that as an imperial tax.
1: Okay, it, right. And...
0: For our military protecting certain resources and trade routes and whatnot, you're going to do all of your business in dollars. That's going to maintain the value of the dollar, keep it higher. That's why you know Americans can buy things relatively cheaply.
1: Back to gold or back to commodities then, can you talk through the very basics of how do we get money in the first place? Right, where, where does this- Oh, what, is it? Thing what, from? what I mean, is it? What is it? What, you know, what's where-
0: Yeah. How does it's, it get into in human society? It's really simple. It's simply a store of value. And value, when we say a store of value, I like to say, I know that sounds a little arcane, value just means work. So I like to use the example of fish. If you've ever lived in an area where people salt fish like uh, cod for example or salmon you know the fishing boat goes out gets all this fish that's worth x amount of money but that fish goes bad really quickly you've either got to freeze it or sell it immediately but if you want to kind of store that work that you did you can salt the fish Mm -hmm. you can salt it and that preserves it for i don't know what six eight months Mm -hmm. So what money is, is stored work. So all that work you did fishing, you can immediately come and sell the fish, right? So you exchange your work for bread or whatever, or you can you salt the fish. And that stores the value. It stores the work in there. And, you know, you can't really divide it, but you can just sell 10 fish or 20 fish or 50 fish to somebody. And that fish becomes money. Right. And that's really what money is. Money is a store of value, just like the gold. Think about all the work it takes to mine gold, to mine an ounce of gold. That's a lot of work. But gold is a fabulous store of value. So imagine you spent six months working in a gold mine and you come out with, you know, a kilo of gold. That will perfectly store your work. You can go anywhere in the world and exchange that chunk of gold for whatever you want an okay. equivalent value
1: so this is what resolved the problem for me this is what resolved for me what i couldn't figure out when i was in high school right because in my mind money and the state were so intertwined you know and we'll come on to that how that image is created i'll just say you know here in britain the queen's head is on the banknotes, right and it could be no other way it's you cannot conceive of money without the state and so when i tried to figure out where it came from i centered it around how does the state create it i couldn't do it right and reading rothbard and it's literally about i think in the first 20 odd pages of his book the mystery of banking he totally explained it to me in the way you're talking about it now of essentially if you think of barter to start with one good starts to be predominantly traded and let's just say it was eggs or something, but the eggs have certain limitations. They break, they go up or whatever. And people will always take that good because they know they can offload it. And this tends towards gold and silver because it's divisible. Um, it doesn't wear out. It's got all these advantages, gold, silver, copper, metal make much better money. They make use of it um, than perishable goods. Right. So money arises essentially on the marketplace and not, through the state and that's i think i'd have looked at that problem for 100 years and not figured that out right if that's had someone not told me because it's completely where i wasn't looking and the idea that a marketplace could create currency and that you could have competing currencies and you know some people using gold other people using silver interject something totally new like bitcoin and we see modern examples of this i think in like uh, prisoner of war camps where cigarettes yeah become a currency okay that I don't I don't smoke, but I don't think they're that perishable. I think that, I don't think I'll tell by day no. like, right? They'll last they'll last a long time. There we go. They're somewhat divisible and they're they right? have enough value to be worth something, but not so much that you can't um exchange even a proportion of one for some food or something. So cigarettes make a reasonable currency.
0: Yeah, right. Absolutely.
1: So then there's the transition. How do we get that transition then from this commodity money, this market-based, independent money, decentralized, there's no one determining what it should be, it's just the general will of the collective people and what they will find credible to accept. How do we go from that to pieces of paper with the Queen or the President's head on?
0: Yeah, that, that's a really interesting story. And I, I recently was looking at the history of China and how that happened in China, and it's fascinating. It comes down to taxes, really. So if we look at sort of a feudal society and a feudal lord controls an area, this feudal lord is gonna want taxes. And generally those taxes were paid, for example, in wheat or in uh, livestock or however they decided to get, to, to get that. But that becomes extremely cumbersome. And it's really interesting, I believe it was in the 15th and 16th century, the Chinese were, the government was paid taxes in all sorts of goods. And it became very complicated. And when the when the Spanish discovered the Amer or went to the Americas and found all this silver, the Chinese started to monetize to create an accepted means of va- uh, means of exchange, which would be money that the state would accept for taxes. And that was silver. So that's why the, a lot of the Spanish ships would go to China with silver, take out. Chinese goods, remember, China was the world's largest economy till about 1800. yeah and then you have that bad period and now it's back to being the world's largest economy. so they would go exchange the silver for silk, whatever porcelain, and then this, the the Chinese started to use silver as a means of exchange to pay taxes, so I think the state getting involved is is one hundred percent connected to collecting taxes the feudal tax you've got to pay the state okay uh
1: so that takes us to the point where the state is is taxing but it's still a commodity at this point it's still although that of course could rig the game right because previously it's whatever the community has decided let's say is credible and what the the shopkeepers will take and if if shopkeepers woke up tomorrow and decided actually silver was just a silly shiny metal and it wasn't worth anything, then suddenly you couldn't buy your groceries in it. You'd have to have copper or gold or something else. But if
0: you need it to pay taxes, there's a demand on it.
1: Everyone is, yeah. And there's no, there's no going to a different government. If if your shopkeeper goes mad and decides silver isn't worth anything, you can choose to go buy your groceries elsewhere. You can't choose to pay your taxes elsewhere without extraordinary measures.
0: (laughs) So that, and this goes back to the Romans and, I believe the Phoenicians were the first ones um, to come up with uh, actual silver money. I believe the Phoenicians were the first.
1: Yes, we yeah, have yeah. heard that. Um, so this goes <coughs> to the point where the, the, the state is rigging the game now with money, okay? And this tends to enshrine certain commodities as being money, but we're still at the point where it is a commodity right yeah, but if i exactly. take my 10 pound note into the bank tomorrow they won't give me 10 pounds of silver for it they'll give me 10 pounds for it which is another note even so so how does that I and mean, that that seems like a loss to me right that uh, i think sterling was silver i don't know actually but either way silver yeah. or gold i can't i can't get 10 pounds of copper with a 10 pound note nowadays right nothing you know so um that's that's a substantial progression on from that how how did money essentially become delinked from, or we've got these notes? The state, the state, the state presumably started issuing notes at some point itself for representations of. Yeah,
0: money. that's when, Yeah, that's a really good question. When did that begin? Because, for example, the the dollar, the history of the dollar is fascinating. The dollar was originally the tolar, which I believe was Dutch. It was a Dutch um, silver coin. Mm-hmm. that the Spanish began to use and called it the dollar, dollar. And then from the Spanish silver coin, it comes to the United States. And when did the United States begin actually? And then it was and still at that point, it was, it was, there were coins that remember the U S constitution says only the treasury can make uh coin. It can actually coin money. Okay. Because in, in the US Constitution.
1: silver and gold, there's nothing to stop anyone coining money. It's perfectly legitimate. that you can't, you know, other than say, um, giving it an inaccurate measure. You know, yeah. gold plate on right. a bar or something. Um, there's no reason why everyone shouldn't coin money. Right? which is obviously sure. to the modern mindset, that's ridiculous. Like if you think about it as banknotes, when you think about it as commodities, that's fine. Okay. So the state starts off printing well, coining its own silver and printing notes as represent Representations of gold and silver, and then somewhere along the way, there's a delinking where we write exactly off the paper as being the thing itself, oh. as money, not a representation of money.
0: Exactly, and, and that that's and that's what we we all have ingrained in us is that when we see a dollar, this dollar means this dollar with all of this arcane imagery on it and george washington or whoever where it comes from actually equals something and in the united states technically 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 i guess it's not until nixon takes us off the gold standard because in the 1960s at Bretton woods the dollar becomes the world reserve currency Mm -hmm. but the u.s based on u.s gold so there's a representation for the, the there's a connection between dollar and gold, and then all currencies are pegged to the dollar. So even until the '70s, technically, all these currencies were pegged to a dollar, which could be exchanged for gold. Okay. And what happened in this? Oh, uh huh. Go ahead.
1: So Those because that's internationally, isn't it? Because uh, Franklin Roosevelt moved the dollar away from gold domestically and confiscated the gold in the U.S.
0: He 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 yeah, and they they pegged the price at what was it thirty? I can't twenty seven, it, 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 right around thirty dollars. Yeah,
1: it was. I think it was twenty seven dollars. Um, twenty
0: seven dollars was an ounce of gold, right? And I'm, and I'm that gonna... remained until what was it the uh, until until Nixon delinked it. Right. Okay. Okay. um So
1: the the way I just I'll throw in a, a sort of abstract example mm-hmm. um and yeah you can tell me you think i'm, I'm accurate here and uh, hopefully it'll be helpful for the audience so the way if, like if you i hear it explained in terms of like if you imagine a medieval kingdom and they're collecting that the king is collecting his taxes in in silver coins uh, and he's a bit hard up where he's got a war to fund so let's say a war because that's the usual thing so all these coins have maybe um an ounce of silver let's say in a coin and he comes up with a trick where he starts, he collects the taxes in, but when he spends the coins back out, um, the kingdom coin is now only uh, seven-eighths of an ounce, right? And he's okay. got a big pile of silver left in the corner. But because the popular mind, this is like, it's like a magic trick. It's like a sleight of hand, or it, it's an act of theft in this case, because people think the coin is the thing of the king's face of it, and it doesn't matter how much it weighs, um, he's able to get away with it. And then, five years later, another war, and suddenly the coins are six ounces, six sorry, six uh, eighths of, of an ounce of an ounce. Yeah.
0: Or you could just make you can make or you can mix the metals. The Romans were always doing that, playing with the percentage of silver in the coin. Games that people play with with currencies.
1: So is that essentially what? States did that there was a process of erosion leading ultimately to a total delinking when now it is in the end the king is like taking in silver and then he's just handing paper back out and he's got all the silver, and the the citizens have just the paper
0: yeah but you you when you follow the specific histories like for for example in Rome where they they actually they just it was the percent of silver in the coin would go down and then you'd have you'd wind up having inflation. But I think the modern example is a little bit different because what's happening with a bank, when a bank creates money in a modern banking system, they're not tricking you, it's all right in front of you. I mean, if you go and look, you can go to the Federal Reserve and they explain the system. The US government makes money. By creating credit that's what money is money is credit it's an it's a future obligation of work it has nothing to do with metals but our but I think you're right our conception of money meaning having some connection to something of value that's what confuses us So when we go to the bank and we get $100,000, we think we're getting something that's real and tangible, that's connected to some real tangible asset. And we're not, we're getting $100,000, which is somebody's or some group of people's promise to do some work in the future. And that's where the real sleight of hand is.
1: Okay, so popping back to my earlier question about who benefits and who loses, and what do you think of this system? Is it, is it, is it I think it's a better system than when we all had gold in our pockets, a worse
0: system? Who's, who's benefiting? Who's losing out? What, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, the banks obviously are making out like bandits. So let's go back to the original example with the mortgage. So the bank thinks it's $10,000, okay? Mm-hmm. It sends it to the federal reserve and the federal reserve says okay bank you have ten thousand dollars in an account here you can create one hundred thousand dollars fantastic guy comes in gets a hundred thousand dollar loan at five percent let's just call it five percent okay right Mm -hmm. what's five percent of a hundred thousand dollars $5,000. Yeah. So what are they making on that $10,000? 50%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you calculate in compound interest and how the interest is paid in the beginning, et cetera, et cetera, it's an unbelievable business. It's, it's an unimaginable business. It's, 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 it's unethical and just just one thing what you pay back to the bank is work and the only thing the bank did was monetize your promissory note okay. and they're making they're making 50% return on monetizing promissory notes and i'm paying back in work
1: so is this the answer to the riddle that started you on this journey of yes. like how a bnp that they seem to be a loss leader. It's not really a loss leader.
0: No, of course not.
1: It's a massive, massive profit maker.
0: It's a massive profit maker. It's a massive profit maker.
1: And this might be an obvious question, uh, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. I've asked you who wins, who loses in this?
0: Oh, absolutely all the citizens of all the states in the world who are paying taxes to, to service debt are losing. All the kids that are going to college in the United States who are going into 20, 30, 50, I think the average, I can't remember what it was, but it's, it's gotta be in the 30 or $40,000 range. Of students who take debt, the average is like 30 or 40,000. In the US, we have one, over $1 trillion in student loan debt. These are like 22 year old kids who are getting locked into this. So all of the people who are servicing debt, paying debt, are losing. And all of the people who own that debt are winning. So the one, not even the 1%, it's probably yeah. the half of the 1% are getting fabulously rich. And most of the population are debt slaves. They're truly debt slaves. And it's not only the debts they pay, it's what we pay in taxes. Because one thing that drives me insane, when you see governments with these enormous debts, what's the explanation? Oh, politicians are so stupid. No, politicians are not stupid. You don't become a senator or you don't get to the House of Representatives, A, being stupid. And B, you don't get to those places without you know, doing the bidding of the extremely wealthy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So when governments create enormous deficits, those deficits are being bought by banks and they're making a killing on them. And who's, who's paying, who's servicing those debts? The citizens who are paying taxes, who are actually working and paying taxes. And that's what's wrong with the system. If we had a system where work what I mean is if if I can play around with paper and create just hundreds and hundreds of years of work in the future that people have to go out and work and pay me back just by playing around with paper it causes an enormous disequilibrium in our, in our society mm-hmm. and that's what we're seeing now and this crazy consumerism
1: so what's What's the solution in your mind? Is it a return to something like a commodity-based money?
0: It could be, but it's not necessary. I don't believe it's necessary, Mm -hmm. but you could make a mix. You could have a mix. For example, take the United States. We have, we're actually the world's largest producer of oil again, as of last month. So the country with the largest production of oil. So you could base, for example, a dollar on, Gold, silver, oil, and maybe some other esoteric top idea that would be, I don't know, some growth rate in GDP, something like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You create this money that only the government can can print. Only the government create. And, and if you want to expand the monetary supply, well, the, you can just add that to the government budget, right? Because now if you want to create the government, the government says, oh, okay. We have to go borrow money that banks are basically creating out of nothing, lending it to the government, making a killing on this. No, the government is the only people who create money and banks become money agents, money agents. So you, there's nothing wrong with a bank having assets and loaning out those assets and making a spread. That's perfectly reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. I put my money in the bank. I get two percent. They loan it out for seven percent they sure. make a five percent spread. Sure. That's fine. That that would be reasonable, and the type of risk that that would be the, the the risk analysis there would be very different. You wouldn't be giving this money to kids to get uh, you know a bachelor's degree from Tulane for seventy thousand dollars or sure. one hundred fifty thousand dollars.
1: And this is actually how people think banks do work, of course. That you put no, of
0: course. <laughs> yes. 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 I mean, imagine when you go to the bank. Imagine when you go to the bank and you see this is one thing that always fascinated me. Deposit rates, right? Mm-hmm. So you put your money in the bank, 1%. Mortgages, 6%. What do 99% of people think? Oh, well, that's not so bad. I mean, banks gotta make money, right? I put my money in, I get one. They loan it out as a mortgage at five. That's not so bad, okay. Seems like a reasonable business. These seems like reasonable guys. they all wear suits. They have these big buildings with columns. They speak very seriously. They're pillars of our society. Okay, but that's not what's going on. The bank on your deposit is making 50% and you're getting 1%. (laughs) If people knew that, if the bank had a sign that said, we're making 50% on your deposits, and we're paying you one percent people would say wait wait a second
1: okay if the banks have a profit <laughs> margin that that's great though surely surely there's a competitive need in banks to get money in right so if it's 50 percent to one percent surely the banks are going to need to they're going to start to up the offer right they're going to start competing for customers and that's going to be 2%, 3% and up. So unless the game is rigged in some way, you know what I mean? Like if I start a, you know, a baseball hat company, I can't charge $1,000 for a hat because someone else is charging $10, right? So there's, the market competition brings down prices and brings up what you're offering your investors in the banking sense, right? So, so what's the, is there some sort of bottleneck there that stops that process happening? I'm thinking, like, is it banking licenses? Is it the state's restrictions on who can become a bank?
0: Well, first of all, we have a federal reserve system. So there's a system, at least in the United States. Now we have a federal reserve system, right? And the federal reserve creates the rates. So they look at the inflation rate and they create what the rates should be at. Mm -hmm. And then the banks compete on on those levels. But it's not like you say where, because remember, it's all through that Federal Reserve system. If we had kind of the, the libertarian system where any, anybody could create money, could, you know, have their silver coins and lend them out. Like if, if, we, could, if we had competing Federal Reserve banks that yeah. had the same game, then, it would, then you would have your baseball cap analogy would work. But there's only one player on the block. So, so
1: there's something, and that, they run. Mm-hmm. There's something that stops me starting a bank tomorrow and lend, like offering customers ten percent, um, offering depositors ten percent, right? Because I think, well, hey, look, I'm going to make fifty percent, right? So I can give them ten. I'll massively outcompete all the other banks. Everyone's sure. going to rush to me. I'll have all the money. I can make all the loans. And um, there's there's something that, like, I mean, I've never tried to start a bank, so I don't know. But it's. Just, What's wrong with my, my scheme?
0: Right. Remember the, the federal reserve is a, it's a private entity, mm-hmm. but they are the only ones that can, that can allow you to create money. Right. So you can't open a bank without being in the federal reserve system. How do I get into that? Is it an application form or is it a more complex than that? You know, that part, That part, I I have no idea how that would happen. Would it it be fair to assume that it's not
1: as easy as just filling out the correct forms
0: and and away we go? But even if you did, Mm -hmm. so let's say you fill out the correct forms, you're still in that Federal Reserve system. And the only way to create money is to deposit on reserve with the Federal Reserve Bank and they allow you to create... You see, so it's all connected to them if we moved that to the Treasury so if we eliminated the Federal Reserve we created the Treasury was the only entity in the United States that could create money so I'm saying follow the Constitution I mean Scalia even admitted Scalia even admitted that uh, you know the originalist idea of the Constitution a lot of the conservative Supreme Court justices you know we have to have an original sort of interpretation there's no way that the Federal Reserve Act would survive the Supreme Court if, if from a literalist interpretation. It's, it's completely anti-constitutional. It, it just, it's one of the, I would love, I mean, and on the legal side, I, I, I really don't know much. There was one famous case in the United States. I don't know if you're familiar with this case where the guy in Minnesota, he was a journalist, got a mortgage and then he went to um, a judge. You can find it, you can find the case on on Wikipedia. But basically, what happened was he went to the judge and he said, "I'm not paying this mortgage because there's a concept in in um, in law where if I say I'm going to paint your house and you say you're going to pay me $100, we have a contract. Mm-hmm. But if I if I say I'm going to paint your house," And you say, you're not going to pay me anything. There's no contract. So Makes it's, sense. it's, you have, there has to be an exchange for there to be a contract. And okay. this guy said, the bank did nothing to create that hundred thousand. I can't remember the account amount was the, the hundred thousand dollars in the mortgage. They did nothing. So they bring in the bank manager and the bank manager was kind of snarky and explained the whole thing. And the judge asked him, Well, where did you go to get this money? He said, No, we didn't. We created the money from the promissory note. And the bank, that, that judge ruled in favor of the, uh, of the guy that they were trying to take the house from. Then it got, it got kicked out on an appeal. And there's a long story to that well, case. Okay. Well, we'll link to the article. It actually, it, it actually, it's in my article on, uh, on cactusland.com, mm-hmm. The Moral Hazard of Martin Banking. I have a link. To the Wikipedia page and.
1: Okay, and well, I'll, I'll link to that.